0: Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Yes, are you ready? Yeah. Right, Let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you uh, for today. Lord, indeed, this is the day that you have made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, we rejoice in this day, Because of your grace, your mercy that's been so freely given to us, Lord, we remember all that you've accomplished and purchased for us on the cross of Calvary. God, help us indeed to be a people of great joy, people who would rejoice in the moment, people who would celebrate in this day. God, we ask that you'll help us even as we dive into your word. Teach us, guide us, lead us by your Holy Spirit. We welcome you, Spirit of God. Come and rule and reign in this place. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 <clears throat> awesome. I'm going to start. Robin Williams. How many of you know Robin Williams? Yeah, yeah. Robin Williams. Uh, Robin Williams, uh, star of uh, many uh, movies. Can you shout out a few movies that's been Patch a part of him? What? Patch <laughs> Adams. That's one of my favorites. What? Flubber, Dead Birds Society. Come on. Yes, Jumanji. Ooh, wow. that's an old one, is it? <laughs> That's very old. You just dated yourself. <laughs> uh, I like Goodwill Hunting. How many of you see Goodwill Hunting? Yeah, that's one of my favorites. Robin Williams, uh, amazing actor, and uh, of course we know uh, tragic story. And uh, this man who brought so much joy to the world through the, the medium of comedy, through the medium of laughter, a person who uh, has a larger than life personality. And I can't help but think of him as an architect, archetype for our current. Moment, this moment in time, that deep beneath um, you know, the exterior of a larger-than-life personality, you know, this uh, comedic persona, this person of laughter, you know, this great smile, lies within him a deep well of sadness. deep well of sadness. We all know in 2014, uh, Robin Williams committed suicide uh, after an intense bout of depression, that deep beneath you know, this exterior of laughter, of comedy, you know, larger and life personality, light within him, an immense struggle, pain, sadness. David Scoff, author of a new biography of Robin Williams, said this about him. We can't predict the entirety of a person from the portion of the image we see on TV or in writing or in social media. The reality is that it's only a fraction of who they are, the part of themselves they choose to put out and share. Whether it's suicide by Anthony Bourdain or Kate Spade or uh, recently I chanced upon a statistic that... Uh, that over the last few years, um, the usage of antidepressants has gone up some 65% in the last few years. We can come to a pretty clear conclusion you know, with all these stories, four recent stats, that in spite of you know, the, the advancement of the modern world in which we live in, in spite of digital advancement, in spite of hyper-connectivity, in spite of having more entertainment options than there ever has been in human history, the world we live in today... Is a sad and unhappy world. That statistics will show that people are a lot more unhappy today than they have been in decades. I know this just took a massive <laughs> turn in the, the other direction. We're all happy, happy, and now Andre's talking about that, but we'll get somewhere good, I promise. According to a 2015 study by the World Health Organization, Singapore has the highest depression rate in Asia. The Institute of Mental Health reviewed that there, there was a 20% increase in cases of major depressive disorders between 2014 and 2016. Singapore is known for a stable economy, world-class infrastructure, excellent housing, education, and healthcare systems that many countries envy, yet Singaporeans are unhappy. Almost one in two Singaporeans are unhappy at work. A recent uh, poll done by Jobstreet would show that some 45% of Singaporeans would say that they are unhappy at their job. The World Happiness Report, and this is something that we're familiar with in 2018, ranks 156 countries by their happiness levels. Singapore is ranked 34th out of 156, a drop from 2017's ranking of 26. We ranked 34th, you know, in the the happiness report, and you know, I so love seeing Singaporeans' reactions to that. It's like, oh, what? 34th? I'm happier. I'm happier. <laughs> Who's who are you saying I'm not happy? I'm happier. And Singaporeans get all like defensive, like I'm happier, you know, and uh. 34th is kind of like a B, you know, and we're like, no, we're not visions. we're Asians, you know, we need, we need like, to get Ben 1. <laughs> it's so funny. You know, we have a lot of guests uh, that, that come from abroad that uh, visits our church, and uh, one of the questions I love to ask them is, uh, you know, if you could describe Singapore in a, in a few words, what would those words be? And more typically, we, the words that I, I hear are like, um, clean, safe, bustling tons of entertainment, a foodie paradise. And every time I hear Singapore being described like that, I get filled with like, an immense sense of pride. of like, yeah, you know, we're clean, yeah, we're a fine city, foodie paradise, bustling awesomeness. But you and I, who live in this city, we know that just like Robin Williams, there's a lot more that meets the eye. There's a lot more that lies beneath the surface. Walking around Singapore, especially if you work here in the CBD, you can almost feel a tangible heaviness that lies in the atmosphere. A sense of lethargy, sadness, stressed up, pent up, desires that is further exacerbated by our culture's insatiable need for hurry. So, it's with that, all that information, I'd just like to ask you a simple question today. Are you happy? Are you happy? Not just in this moment, but are you, for the most part, a happy person. Is the dominant emotion that you identify with in life happiness? What your friends say that you, Andre, you are a happy person. What you say that you are, for the most part, happy. That happiness is not just a fleeting emotion but a state of being for you. Are you happy? The word happy could mean different things to different people and it's pretty broad in its definition but here are some synonyms. contented, cheerful, Merry, beaming, joyful. Question for us today is this Are you happy? Are you joyful? You know, we're closing uh, our series on emotional health uh, this week six, and we've covered a bunch of topics in the last five weeks. We talked about looking beneath the surface, that there's indeed more beneath the surface than meets the eye, that some of the dysfunctions that we have in life uh, can be directly connected to some struggles we have in our internal world. We talk about walking through pain and how pain is something we get the process of God. We talk about resting, uh, rest for your soul. We talk about sacred rhythms. We talk about Sabbath. I love Sabbath. Monday is Sabbath day. Awesome things happen in Sabbath. Amen. Hallelujah. Um, we talked about the courage to be honest. <laughs> All giggling. Huh? like The courage to be honest. We talked about authenticity and vulnerability, how we want these to be the cultures of a church. And last week, we talked about dealing with the past, and this is by far the most difficult movement. Uh, If you weren't present for last week's sermon, I would highly encourage you to listen to that sermon. We talked about a bunch of stuff, but specifically how our family of origin, the home that we grew up in, actually influences uh, us in our present day. Now, we have just begun as a church to embrace a theology that values emotional health, well-being, as an essential aspect of our spirituality. And all of the above are necessary but painful movements we have to make toward that goal. They involve the confronting our past, confronting feelings of regret, processing pain, sadness, anguish. You know, these are all really essential movements. You know, Confronting your past, feelings of regret, processing pain, sadness, anguish. And the Bible has a word to describe all of that. The Bible calls it mourning. Now, while mourning is an essential step in our journey towards emotional wholeness, hear me when I say this, it is not God's intended destination for you and I. Now, if the goal here is for us to leave this series with like, okay, you know, I can talk about my pain well, I can process pain, I can vocalize my sadness, my anguish, you know, that's a great uh, step towards the right direction, but that's not the intended destination that God has for you and I. Do you agree on that? While mourning is essential, it is not the end goal. The psalmist writes, Weeping may last for the night. In some translation, mourning may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy comes with the morning. Joy, I'd like to suggest to you, is our intended destination. I will go on to say that joy is the pinnacle, is the summit point for emotional maturity. Joy. Because here's the thing. Joy is not just an emotion, it is an overall condition of the heart. Yeah. Joy is not just an emotion, it's not just a fleeting thing, but it's an overall condition of your heart, your internal world, right. filled with joy, fullness of joy, brimming, overflowing with joy. Okay. Today I'd like to speak to you on the subject, emotionally healthy spirituality, the discipline of celebration. The discipline of celebration. Celebrate good times. Thank you. I have a witness. Just now that God is good thing didn't get as much traction as this. Exactly, right? Yeah, I, I echoed, I echoed. The discipline of celebration. Now, it's so strange to, strange to see the word discipline tied to the word celebration. It almost seems like two completely different things, contrary things. Nobody looks at disciplines and go like, this is like, yay, happy stuff. Discipline is usually associated with a lot of pain, struggle, discomfort. Celebration is happy, happy, happy. But I'd like to propose to you today that we, as believers, cultivate joy in our spirits by partaking in the discipline of celebration. Dallas Willard says this, disciplines are activities within our power that enable us to accomplish what we cannot do by direct effort. Hear me. Disciplines are activities within our power that enable us to accomplish what we cannot do by direct effort effort. If joy is the intended destination, joy is the goal, the discipline of celebration is how we get there. If joy is the soccer match, celebration, the practice of celebration, the discipline of celebration is the training ground for that match. What do you think is the most repeated command in the Bible? It's not any of the prohibitions or warnings. It's not about sex or money or power. The most repeated command in the Bible will probably surprise you. Is this, to be happy. God tells us more than anything else in different ways to praise the Lord. Do not be afraid. Rejoice and give thanks. All of which are commands in essence to be happy. Now I don't want to move past this too quickly. Let this sink in. Let this sit. More than anything else, God commands you and I to be happy. God commands you and I to be happy. Not just in heaven someday, not just when circumstances take a turn for the better, not when the sorrow or the darkness finally lives. God wants you to taste real joy today, now. Now. In no way is this meant to trivialize the trials you may be experiencing in life, the suffering may be exquisite, the sorrow may, may almost drown you, the fear may be paralyzing, but the Bible, if you can believe it, suggests to us that God's dominant theme for all of us, for all of Scripture, is joy. God wants us to know that the kind of hope that has the power to produce joy in us even in painful places, He repeatedly commands us to be really, truly, deeply, madly happy. Savage God. The Irish band, Ren Collective, Uh Ren, Ren Collective. Have you know Ren Collective? Yes, you know they sing the song that we you know. Every Giant will fall. That's Ren Collective, and uh, yes, uh, its lead singer, uh, Gareth Gilson. You know, they 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 produce a video, exuberant video, which extols the importance of joy. He has this to say about joy: joy is a spiritual discipline. Let that sit in. Joy is a spiritual discipline, not the byproduct of circumstances taking a turn for the better, not a fleeting emotion, not something that. No, God throws at you like joy bomb. No, joy is a spiritual discipline. It is a spiritual discipline. We as a people are much more inclined to negativity and cynicism. Do we agree on that? Yes? That's me. We don't find it easy or natural to pursue joy. And that's why God in His Word actually commands us to celebrate. We come by a gospel worth celebrating before a celebrating king. We need to get down to the serious business of joy. That's a C.S. Lewis quote. Joy is the serious business of heaven. We must wrestle for our blessing. We must fight for our joy. Dallas Willard, he, he says it's about joy. Joy is not the mere sensation of pleasure. It's a pervasive, constant, and unending sense of well-being that flows from vision, peace, righteousness, and hope. True joy is robust, even including outright hilarity. We can experience the joy of being in God's kingdom even in the midst of suffering and loss. Joy, we know in Scripture, is something that can be present even in the midst of the most intense suffering. The Bible tells us that Jesus, for the joy so set before Him, endured the cross. Joy is something that can be present even in the midst of suffering and pain. Now I'm going to potentially contradict myself here, but you know, track with me. You trust me, yes. We're going into a new territory, a whole new world. Don't you dare close your eyes. You may have heard, a bunch of sermons on joy, right? How many of you have heard a bunch? I've heard at least 15 or 20, heard a bunch of sermons on joy, and I hope what I share today will bring unique value to what you already know. For the most part, preachers, when they tackle the subject of joy, they like to draw a distinction between joy and happiness, right? Happiness is fleeting, it's, it's of the world, joy is eternal, it's everlasting, Happiness is, is, the, the bad st- is the stuff that you don't want. You really want joy. And it draw a distinction between the two. And for the most part, I agree with these distinctions made. But I think there may be a false dichotomy at play here. While I agree with the distinctions for the most part, I think that there may be a false dichotomy at play here. And I choose to see it this way. Joy is so much more than happiness, but it is not any less. Joy is so much more than happiness but it is not any less the joy that Christ promised is so much more than feelings of euphoria excitement laughter but it shouldn't be less than that that is to say that God desires for us to be happy to express our happiness and we almost create a subcategory for this thing we call it like internal joy like yeah I have the joy of the Lord it's inside down 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 deep in my heart deep in my heart it's inside. Right. No, we walk around like, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Like I come into His presence with thanksgiving and praise. Joy. You know, I, I remember you know, I, was, I signed up for a church choir back in my band when I was growing up. And uh, usually, you know, they, they put uh, the, the, the people who sign up through a one-month understudy process. And the understudy process looks like coming to church really, really early and just singing and then not being a part of. And uh, my, my choir director put me through a year-long understudy process, and I didn't know why. And uh, towards the end of that understudy process, she said to me, like, Andre, you're not expressing the joy of the Lord. And I couldn't, for the love of me, understand. I was like, what do you mean I couldn't? I'm not expressing the joy of the Lord. I said, like, I feel it. I feel it. I, I'm joyful. I really am. And, and, but for some reason, my face did not translate the joy that's in my heart, right? Here's, here's what I'm trying to say. It's not enough to just have the internal thing. We are to be expressive, or in the words of Dallas Willard, we are to be robust in our joy. And Jesus models that for us. Jesus models a life of great joy, of exuberance. He was happy. Now, most of us, you know, when we approach the subject of happiness, we don't think to look to Jesus and his way for the key to happiness. We look to like mindfulness or the Dalai Lama or Oprah, you know, whatever your persuasion is. For most of us, we think Jesus has little or nothing to say about the subject of happiness. Let's have our next picture up. And this is a picture of the Sistine Chapel. And in right in the middle, in pale white, is Jesus. And you know, this is, for the most part, our image of Jesus. He was pale white. Never mind he was a Jew who walked a lot in the sun. He was pale white. And he was bone thin. Never mind he was accused of being a glutton or drunkard. He was bone thin, skinny, malnourished. But more notably so, painting after painting after painting portrays him as sad. Sad. Never mind there was a prophecy that says the Messiah would be anointed with the oil of gladness far above, far beyond his companions. My wannabe Eugene Peterson uh, translation of the verse is this. Jesus would be the happiest person alive. Jesus would be the happiest person alive. The prophecy will be quoted multiple, multiple times by New Testament writers, which says to us that the people who know him, who actually spend time with him, who commune with him, would say that he is the happiest person alive. And I would like to suggest to you is that, that you don't get that accolade. You don't get that remark by having the internal joy. <laughs> yeah. I'm making sense. Yeah. When we look at Jesus' life, we, we often talk about the most solemn and serious moments, and these are great holy moments. The crucifixion is one of the most important events in Christian history, and we should always keep that in mind. Yet Jesus, in His life, also celebrated life. He attended weddings where He turned water into wine. He raised the dead to such celebration. He celebrated His disciples at Last Supper by washing their feet and breaking bread with them. There are plenty of examples of celebrating in the Old Testament, from David dancing the streets, to celebrations in Esther when the Jews were saved. We learn that God did not just put us here to be solemn all the time. Spiritual mode. He also knows that sometimes the best expressions of our faith in Him is joy, celebration, and just having some good fun. Are you with me today? Let's look at passage of scripture from John chapter 2, the life of Jesus in Nazareth. John chapter 2, it says, on the, on the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus, Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. And he said to her, "Woman, why do you involve me? Now, you know, I haven't done the exegesis for this portion, and so don't get tripped up and don't try and call your mother woman. You might get smacked around and won't be responsible for that. He said, my hour has not yet come. Next slide. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Now he goes on to say, he did not realize where he had come from through the servants who had drawn the water. New. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. Now, there's a party tip for you: if you're hosting a party, choice stuff goes out first, and then you know, when they're a bit more happy, they would not even tell the difference. But you save the best <laughs> till last. But you know, Jesus is nice, and so am anyway. I. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which He revealed His glory and His disciples believed in Him. Catch that last line. It was the first of the signs through which He revealed His glory and His disciples believed in Him. A sign in the library of Scripture is always a pointer to reality and reality, by definition, reality in the kingdom of God. And he says further that these are the first of signs through which Christ revealed His glory. Now, when you think of glory, don't think of fame or celebrity status. Glory in the library of Scripture is His presence and His person. Say that with me, His presence and His person. Think of the cloud that showed up in the desert, His glory manifested and showed up in a cloud. That cloud was His presence. Glory is also His person, His personality, who He was. John was essentially saying that this story of Jesus turning water into wine points to the reality of what God is like. This is who God is like. Through this story, he reveals his glory, his person and his presence, his personality. This is who God is like. From the text we can make a few inferences. Are you tracking me? First, he is the kind of God that gets invited to parties. You no, know, he's the kind of God, fun, loving, happy, made it to the top of the invite list. He was the kind of God that gets invited to parties. Two, he stays at a party for a really long time, <laughs> even until the wine runs out. You know, some of you, when you attend a party, you go like, hey, chuck a gift, pleasantries, pleasantries, pleasantries. You don't even go to the buffet and be like, okay, see you, and then you're, you're out. But Jesus makes that point. He hangs out, he stays, he socializes, he is there, even until the point that wine runs out. And the third point is this. When they ran out of wine, he makes more. And not the cheap stuff, not the box wine, not the wine with like the the screw cap. It is the kind of wine that you take out of the cellar with the dust still on it. You pull it out, it's vintage. The cork might break if you, when you open it, you take it out and you blow off the dust. That kind of wine, the choice wine, the good wine, the sommelier of the kingdom of God. Jesus brings (laughs) the best wine. And in wine, we know scriptures... It's used to represent joy and the Holy Spirit. Is there any wonder, after reading the story, that joy would be one of the central themes, the central teachings of Jesus' ministry on the earth? And we read on further in the book of John. It, it, he goes on further to speak to us about joy. Let's have those slides up. Says in verse says in chapter 15, I've told you this, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Chapter 16, Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you shall receive, and your joy will be complete. I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that my disciples may have the full measure of my joy within them. From the verses we just read, I'd like to draw us into two conclusions. One, God is the most joyful being in the universe. God is the most joyful being in the universe. Theology 101, Jesus is like God. God is like Jesus. Jesus is the perfect image, representation of the Father. In Jesus, we see who and what God is really like. Jesus is the happiest person who's ever lived. God is the most joyful, happy being in the universe. Point two, from reading those verses, God's plan for your life is to grow you into the kind of person who is as joyful as he is. That's why Jesus prayed that prayer for his disciples, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. The word complete there in its original script would suggest full to the brim, overflowing with joy. You know, if you think about your, your joy as like, a, like there's a pressure gauge in your body that, that you know, gives you the readings of your joy, it's, it's off the charts, it's off the meters, the thing is spinning and it's, it's blowing steam, that kind of joy overflowing to the brim, such that it spills out in different ways, be it through laughter, generosity, joy overflowing. You know, I remember, um, how many of you know I'm a massive fan of Star Wars, yes? I'm as committed to Jesus and my wife, and, and Star Wars is like maybe fifth, but, you know, uh, I remember um, I was watching Rogue One. Um, I don't like the new trilogy, by the way. I think it's, uh, it's heresy, but uh, I was watching Rogue One, and uh, Rogue One, there's a scene towards the end, where you know there's a there's a fog and the people are trying to escape. You know, how many of you have seen World One? Yeah, I'm ruining it for you. It's it's fine, this is church. And um and so they're they're escaping, and then a, a dark, shadowy figure stands in the midst of the fog, and then brio, the red lightsaber comes on, and it's Darth Vader. And he goes on and he just destroys everyone. Like he just destroys everyone. And I was sitting there, I was watching that scene, and a little squeal came out of me, like like, you know, like, and I was like, where did that come from? No, that's not a man so I was like, oh, I hope my wife didn't hear that, you know, and that's, it just came out, that kind of joy. It overflows through squealing. Joy, 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 overflowing joy, a joy leak. Our vision for emotional maturity and wholeness should not just end at the ability to share our pain, well, or to mourn. It should look like joy. In the midst of struggle, pain, the circumstances of life, joy. And this is what I want to be. I want to be a joyful person. Not the fake, hypocritical kind, like the one like, oh yeah, I'm joyful. I want to be really, really joyful. Literally, when the things of life come at me, my joy will not be shaken. Theologian John Stott said that the main attribute or mark of justified believers is joy. Randy Clark says this, that... Tears are to repentance, what joy and laughter is to salvation. You know, I was doing a bit of reflection with Amy, and I was sitting there, and I, you know, most of you uh, wouldn't wouldn't know this, but I struggle with this happiness and joy thing, you know, for my, my, almost my entire life, you know. I would identify with being more of the melancholic kind, you know, like, nothing fazes me, like, everything is meh. You know, that's, I should have a shirt for that, you know, and I identify with Eeyore, really, you know. Like, Eeyore is my spirit animal. And, And, you know, I, I really identify that, you know, and and I can I can honestly count like the five or six uh moments in life where I was really really legitimately happy. Wedding day being one of uh, them. Uh, very thing to say that. Yeah, and salvation, <laughs> and and check on my bases, and when PD shake my hand for the real time for the first time, was like oh Daniel, like, don't wash my hand anymore. <laughs> anyway, uh, and, you know, I, I identify with being more the, the melancholic kind. Like, I, I wouldn't say I'm a happy and joyful person. And, you know, studies show that, you know, part of that is, like, a disposition you're born with. But I choose not to identify that. Then I was just talking to Amy, and I was like, man, I really want to be this joyful, happy person. You know, I want to be known for being happy and joyful. Like, people just go to me, like, Andre, well, man, he's such a happy, happy guy. And, you know, I, and I know I'm still a ways away. I was just talking to her, having that, that little bit of re- reflection. And Amy is just like, the opposite end of me. she's just happy, joyful in the moment. Recently, McDonald's, we released the McGriddles, you know, and, uh, and, you know, we both agree that the McGriddles doesn't make sense, but, uh, oh, <laughs> and, uh, but along with the McGriddles, they released this chicken thigh thing, and then, like, Amy was, you when know, she saw that, she's like, oh, my gosh, chicken thigh, and she was so, so happy, joyful, you know, over that chicken thigh, and, and, so like, oh, she's just so, so happy, and she's so, in a moment, so happy, so joyful. And I remember just chatting with her, and I was like, man, you know, I really want to be this joyful, happy person. And, and she's like, you know, I, I think you, if you work on it, you'll, you'll get there. And so, and so I, I asked her, like, i was like, really, you think so? And then I was like, yeah, she's like, yeah. And then I was like, okay, how long do you think I'll take to, to be, get there? She said, um, maybe five years. Five years. And so, uh, five years, no bad, before 40, yeah. And so, Check in with me in five years' time and just and see whether I'm still happy. You know, but for the most of us, we have this joy-bomb mentality, right? You know, we think we come to church or like, you know, during our, our week, you know, when we are not aware, and then God in heaven from his throne just go, whoo, joy-bomb, and then you're like, whoo, joy, you know, and we, we have this passive approach towards joy, don't we, yeah? Jesus' plan for your life and mine is not for you to go to church, Read the Bible, worship, and then for him to dump buckets of joy on you. I'm not saying he doesn't do that, but it's not his MO. (laughs) Jesus has far more ambition for your life. He doesn't want to just dump joy on you. He wants to grow and mature you into a person who is joyful. The overall condition of your heart, the fabric of your character, your personality, who you are, through apprenticeship to the happiest man who ever existed, you become a happy, joyful man or woman. And we get there through practice, through developing habits that work make for a joyful life. If you think of it this way, you know the circumstances of life will always come at us. Yeah. In this life, there is pain, there is struggle, there is hardship. But can we curate such a life, such an internal world, that no matter what gets thrown at us, what comes out is inevitably joy, yeah, happiness. Yeah. Yeah. Full to the brim, contentless contentment, completeness, fullness of joy. Now, I'd like to share with you four habits uh, for a joyful heart. And, uh, you know, we're going to get through this really fast and we're going to end service in a really awesome way today. But the first habit is this. I I think we should learn how to cultivate gratitude. Cultivate gratitude. We're familiar with the statement, I will be happy when blank happens. We can fill in the blank with whatever and we think that the key to our joy is when you know, we move out of the house, when we get married, when we have children, or when we get more money, when we get a new home, when the kids are in school, when the kids leave home, when I retire, or when the circumstances change. The I will be happy when something happens mindset is called the destination disease. And this is a belief that plagues multitudes and it's rooted in the belief that joy depends on changed circumstances. But Paul has something to say on this. In Philippians 4, he says this, and he writes this, while he is in prison. Do we have that slide, Philippians 4? I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. Catch that. I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be a base, and I know how to abound. Most of us think contentedness will happen when the circumstances change, when I get that new job, when I get this thing going in my life. But Paul is saying that, hey... I have learned to be content. That contentment is not a disposition that you're simply born with or a result of circumstances going your way. It's a skill set that you acquire. Contentment. When he pens the word content in his letter, Paul uses the Greek word autarkis. That's my best attempt. A term used by philosophers that means sufficient. I've learned to be sufficient. I have enough. I am enough. And God is Enough. If I ask you today to sit down and write a list of ten problems in your life, and then write another list of ten blessings in your life, which list would be easier to write? For most of us, it's the list of problems. I like to put it to you that that is entitlement and self-pity. It's there's a humanness in all of us that think that we are good, we have rights, God is lucky to have me, and when we don't get what we want, we slip. Into self-pity, the "woe is me, my life sucks" mentality. I deserve better. D E R mentality. Couple questions for you today. Do you have money in your pockets? Really, few. Do you have money in your pockets? More than two dollars? Over three billion people live on less than two dollars a day. Do you have clean drinking water? Nearly one billion people on the planet today do not have access to clean drinking water. Are you alive? Rhetorical question. With food in your stomach. More than 30,000 children die every day from hunger and malnutrition. Are you reading the words in front of you? One out of every five humans is illiterate. Gratitude is all about perspective. We are blessed. Never forget that. Never stop thanking God for His grace. And a great way to practice this is to end your day with a time of gratitude. Think back over the day and give thanks for the moments of awareness, for acts of kindness for love, for glimpses of beauty, brushes with the divine, for moments where you recognize the presence of God, you will find that with this practice, when it becomes a discipline, you will cultivate an awareness for things to celebrate, gratitude. You know, I remember my, my final year in BSSM as I was uh, leaving BSSM, you know, I got to spend some time with uh, Bill Johnson and I was, I was sitting down with him and, you know, I have this typical question I like to ask, like, really, really high-level leaders. I was like, what will you tell, you know, your younger self? Or what is one piece of advice you would give to a, a young pastor? And, you know, I, I just ended my three years there, and I was like, you know, I need something good to come home with. The people are counting on me, man. I was like, I need this, like, gem of wisdom, this, like, gold nugget to come back with. And I sat down with him, and I was, like, expecting to be mind-blown by this awesome revelation, life to be changed, transformed forevermore. And he sat on me and I asked him that question. and He looks at me and said, <clears throat> Don't take yourself too seriously. <laughs> after three years of ministry school, after a whole year of serving him, I was like, This is what I get? <laughs> so I was like, Don't take yourself too seriously. In his Batman voice. But he goes on to say, Have, have fun and be grateful. Now, you know, I <laughs> went. <laughs> When I first heard that statement, believe you, me, you know, I was like, well, that was rubbish. <laughs> and so, and so you know, I, I moved on. And, but today, you know, like, I'm so thankful for that piece of advice. And it's, I, I don't exaggerate it one bit. You know, it has saved my life. You know, to not take myself too seriously, to have fun, to be grateful, to be content. Now let me jump and, and move on to our next point. I think another habit we need to pick up is this, to curate our thought life, to curate our thought life. As we all know, joy is more than an emotion, but it's not less. You can't will an emotion. You can't flip a switch and go joy mode. You know, you can't like in the midst of anxiety go like, okay, I'm gonna flip to the chill mode. You know, it doesn't happen. You can't will an emotion. We don't have control over our emotions because of that. Many people typically live at the mercy of their emotions, a victim to their emotions, their biochemical reactions. We don't have control over emotions, but we do have control over our Mind, our thought life, what we set our attention to, what we give our mental real estate to. And as a general rule, our feelings tend to follow our thinking. Case in point, if today, you know, you close your eyes and you think of your tyrant of a boss. City staff, do not partake in this exercise. But <laughs> you think of your tyrant of a boss. You think of like the injustices of the corporate world. And you think, he's out to get me. And you just fix your mind. You ponder, you think, you think, you think. What feeling would naturally follow that thinking? Anger, rage, if you think about the world, the environment, and you know how by 2035, the trash dumps in Singapore will all be filled and there will be no more places to, to dump trash, go green. And you think about all these things, you think about the dystopian future and you ponder, you think about it, what feelings will come up? Anxiety, fear. Our feelings tend to follow our thinking. In the same way, if you think about God, how good He is, how at the center of the universe is a being who's the source of pure love, joy and peace and then you start to think about all the good, beautiful things that he has given to you, how good, beautiful and true is this earth that we live in. My point is this, you can't will joy but you can curate such a thought life that joy would be the inevitable outcome. Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say, rejoice. We're going to look, look back at Philippians chapter 4. This is important verse to read. Rejoice the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Now we have to know that this existed before the Gutenberg Press, before highlighters came to existence, before bold italics, and all that good stuff. The only way you can emphasize a point is by repeating it. And so he's trying to say, this is important. Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then he gives us instruction. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. N.T. Wright gives us a commentary on this verse that we just read in verse 8, to think about all the wonderful and lovely things listed here, runs directly opposite to the habits of the mind instilled by the modern media. Read the newspapers. Their stock in trade is anything that is untrue, unholy, unjust, impure, ugly, of ill repute, vicious and blameworthy. Is that a true representation of God's good and beautiful world? How are you going to celebrate the goodness of the Creator if you feed your mind only on the place in the world which humans have made ugly? How are you going to take steps to fill your mind instead with all the things that God has given us to be legitimately pleased with and to enjoy and celebrate? All rhetorical questions, by the way. (laughs) We know that bad news sells. Now, I'm not saying do not be informed by the news, etc. Burn all your newspapers. Do not watch the news. I'm not saying any of that. But, however, this is my personal opinion. Say Andre's Andre's opinion. Thank you. We agree on that. I cannot think of a better recipe for anxiety, for sadness, for worry, for fear, than to wake up first thing in the morning, grab your phone, and scroll through your news feed. Andre's opinion. For every good news on there, we know that there are probably 10 worse ones. And we all know that bad news sells. And point number two is this. So much of social media plays into your discontentment in life, your insatiable desire for more stuff, your insecurities. Why do you want to start off your day with that? My point is this. Do not allow your news feed to set your emotional equilibrium and create your worldview, your outlook on life. Here's a simple practice. Before you roll out a bit, spend the first five minutes in your morning. Think about the good day that's in front of you think about the kindness of God, think about all the things that you get to enjoy in the day that's ahead of you. Maybe it might be that cold brew coffee, that nice chocolate cake in the morning, beautiful, beautiful stuff. And then you feel that joy within you. And then you lead the rest of the day with that joy at the center. Then you spend your last five minutes, before you sleep. Don't look at your phone. Spend your last five minutes, just lying there, be still, and thanking God for all the good things that He has done. And bookend your days with joy. And live the, the, the duration of the day with joy at the center. Next one I'd like to bring up. We have to develop a habit to be connecting, to connect with the present. The present. Connect with the present. There's nothing like getting caught up in the past or constantly worrying about the future. That's more that more than ruins the present moment. <clears throat> I've learned that 95% of the things I worry about. Are connected to the future, and 90% of the things I worry about, more often than not, don't really happen. I spend hours of my mental energy thinking about scary scenarios that never really happen or materialize. That's why Jesus said, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. We have enough to deal with today, and most of the time, the troubles of the day are doable. Hard at times, stressful, but doable. There is no intelligent or productive point to guilt about the past or worry about the future. There is no intelligent or productive point to guilt about the past or worry about the future. You might go, what about the eschatology in the Bible? Hope for the second coming of Jesus, the King of God, the new heavens and the new earth. Yes, the entire Bible is eschatological, pointing forward to the renewal of all things. And yes, we are to have hope. But we are also to live in the present. Our eyes on the horizon, but our feet squarely planted on the ground. Simple exercise. Look at your watch. If you have a watch, Look at your phone. If your phone, what's the time now? Eleven fifty-six. Live in eleven fifty-six. <laughs> you know, uh, just just this last week, I was at a concert. I know pastors go to concert. I know. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> I was at a con- concert, and uh, you know, me and Amy were, were, were at a concert, and uh, and one of the things we, we we saw, you know, really really troubled us. You know, we saw uh, all these uh, lights came on in, in the in the concert. Uh, venue and we thought oh did they get a wristband or did they get like some like little thingamajit that makes light? like why didn't we get it? And we realized that everyone in front of us had their phones up. And you know the, the, the guys who are sitting in the row in front of us like they had their phones up the whole time in the concert. It's almost like they are planning to sell a bootleg version of the concert. <laughs> Thing they're like they're like non-stop, non-stop you know <laughs> And you know we, we're all guilty of that right like, we go to a new place and be like oh look look at me, I'm here and then you You Facebook Live, your friend, I know. We all do that sometimes. Here's my point. Our culture has conditioned us to value memories and keepsakes over the actual experience. We value getting to tell people that we have been there instead of actually being there. We live more for the approval, the joy of others instead of our own personal joy. A simple practice to being present is this. Put away your phone. In meals, in conversations in concerts, and in church. Put away your phone. It is literally robbing you of experiencing this moment. But I can FaceTime my friends. I can FaceTime my mom. Yeah, I know. The phones are great. You can FaceTime. Put it away after you FaceTime and then FaceTime (laughs) life. Even in the seasons of overall hardship, there are thousands of moments in beauty. Savor the simple pleasures of life. Turn every cup of coffee, every gulp of oxygen, every sunny day, every experience of pleasure into gratitude and praise. Live in this moment. Experience the good things that God has installed for you in this moment. Our last habit is this, to celebrate life. Celebrate life. Celebration is not a new concept. It's something with deep, ancient, biblical roots. Dallas Willard says this about celebration. Celebration, heartily done, makes our deprivations and sorrows seem small. And we find in it great strength to do the will of God because His goodness becomes so real to us. He goes on to say this. Celebration completes worship because we enjoy ourselves, our life, our world, in conjunction with our faith and confidence in God's greatness, beauty, and goodness. Typically, this means that we come together with others who know God to eat drink to sing and dance and to relate stories of God's action in our lives doesn't that sound like a good good meal yes. now here are some ways to to celebrate that have been practiced by people all through the ages music singing dancing laughter storytelling special events holidays sabbath hanging out with joyful people and the last and i believe the best way we practice celebration is eating yeah and drinking. There's no better way to celebrate in God's kingdom than eating and drinking together. Let's have my next slide up. There are three ways the New Testament completes the sentence, the son of man came. First two is this, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Next one, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And the third time it occurs, it says, is the son of man has come eating and drinking. New Testament scholar Tim Chester says this, the first two are statements of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom to seek and save the lost. But the third is a statement of method. How did he come to seek and save the lost? He came eating and drinking. <laughs> Earlier in the service, we partook of communion together. We had the bread, the wine, the cup, the wafer, the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, and you know, I'm going to do an in-depth teaching on this, but here's, here's just a teaser. Whatever you call this meal, communion the Eucharist, it is at the core of the way of Jesus. In the early church, there's no doubt it was the center of gravity in the, weekly of, in the weekly gathering. But a lot has changed over the last 2,000 years. Originally, it was not just a bite of cracker and a sip of juice. It was a full meal typically enjoyed around a table, not in cathedral with pews. It was a joyful party, more than quiet contemplative sacrament. And it was about communion with each other, not just communion with God. In fact, it was even a vehicle for social justice, as it gave food to the poor in the church and the city. But over time, the meal the, became the mass. One of the original names of the Lord's Supper, communion in the Eucharist, is the agape feast, the love feast. Eating, drinking, celebrating life in the kingdom of God was a core feature in the early church. Max Lucado has this to say, long before the church had pulpit, pits and baptistries, yeah. she had kitchens and dinner tables. Yeah. We're all familiar with the symbol of Christianity being the cross. I'd like to suggest to you that the symbol of the church should be the table. Walnut, dark, long. Hopefully you can accommodate up to 10. That's the symbol of the church in the early days: the table in the table. Let's look at a a piece of scripture and I know I'm running a bit late but this is a good one. you really want to read this with me. Deuteronomy chapter 14. uh, These are divine party instructions that God gives to His people. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place He will choose as a dwelling for His name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant and you've been so blessed by the Lord, you have so many and cannot carry your tithe, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like. Cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink. In some translations, it says strong drink. I'll leave that to imagination. Strong fermented drink. Wine or other Macallan 18, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. That's insane, right? Let me put things into perspective for you. The median monthly income of an average Singaporean is about 4.5k a month. You know, that's about 54 grand a year. We have about 150 working adults in the church. That will work out to roughly 8 million dollars of income a year. What if we took a tenth of that? A tenth of 8 million, that's $800,000, and blew it all in one party. You know, we, we cater steaks from Wolfgang, you know, Uni from Shinji. You know, we get JJ Lin to, to, to sing the event just for 150 of us. Now, if any of you suggested that to me, I would rebuke you. And be like, i will be like, do you not care about the poor? What about the poor? Strangely enough, someone actually made that statement, some other story in the Bible. I'll let you find it. His (laughs) names rhyme with kudos. My point is this. What kind of God will do that? Command you to party, command you to enjoy, command you to eat, to drink, to be merry. A God who is the most joyful being in the universe. Don't get me wrong here, I'm not saying give in to debauchery, get wasted. I'm not at all saying drunkenness is okay. Even in the mouthful you know, we're gonna talk about that one day. That's another teaching for another day. But what I'm saying is that there is a difference between a party in the world and a party in the KOG, in the kingdom of God. Let's have that. The slide up. In the world, you party in order to escape. By the kingdom you party to celebrate. Hear that. In the world you abuse food and alcohol, but in the kingdom you enjoy it. You enjoy it. In the world, parties often look like places of sin, indulgences, but in the kingdom, the communion, the celebration is holy. In the world, the party is only for the cool people, for the in crowd, but in the kingdom, everyone is invited. In the world, you go to hide from God. You know you do some things that you don't want the presence of the Lord to be there, but in the kingdom, God's presence is there among you, even as you celebrate. In the world, you leave with a hangover, but in the kingdom, you leave with joy. And here's what we're going to do, okay? You know, we we endeavor to practice the ways of Jesus in our city. In every sermon, there's a practice attached to it for you to engage in. Now, what we plan to do is in the next couple of weeks, we're going to contact all life group leaders. We're going to give them a set of party instructions, some vouchers to go buy some good stuff from cold storage, you know. And every life group will throw a party and we'll celebrate life in God's kingdom together. And if you're not currently part of Life Group, reach out to us, the staff, will make sure you get placed in one. But together, we're going to celebrate. Celebrate life. Yeah. To sum it up, sum it up. Here's how we cultivate a joyful heart. Here's how to cultivate a joyful heart. Cultivate gratitude. Curate your thought life. Connect with the present. Live in the moment. And celebrate life. I've heard it said that, that happiness is not the by bi- not the purpose of life, but it is the byproduct of life well lived. Can we have a final quote from Richard Foster? Great man, theologian. He says this, God has established a created order full of excellent and good things and it follows naturally that as we give our attention to those things, we will be happy. That is God's appointed way to joy. If we think that we will only have joy by praying and singing psalms, we will be disillusioned. But if we fill our lives with simple good things, and constantly thank God for them, we will be joyful. That is full of joy. In Ecclesiastes, we read this great line that there is a time for everything. There is a season for everything. A time for mourning, for weeping. But there is also a time for joy, for dancing. In the kingdom of God, every year is a year of jubilee. Every day is a day of gladness. And every hour is happy hour. instead.